Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Don't prepare for your next job. Ask yourself, if the next thing I do fails, how do I end up in a better place anyway? If you choose the wrong strategy for the game that you're playing, the likelihood of winning is really low. What we're really trying to constantly do is increase our options and increase our potential. Where can I do things that others can't? How can I nudge the system to my strategic advantage as opposed to playing by other people's rules? Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Brill. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Harsha. It's wonderful to see you. And thanks for getting up so early in California um, <laughs> very much, and, and on Labor Day. That's, that's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Excellent. Jonathan is a renowned expert on resilient growth and decision-making under uncertainty. His insights are based on experience as a senior leader and the global futurist at Hewlett-Packard. He directed long-term strategy and intelligence programs. He is the managing director of Resilient Growth Partners and a board member at Frost & Sullivan, a major market intelligence firm with offices in 46 countries. He is a futurist in residence at Territory Studio, the creative visionaries behind the sci-fi tech in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, Ghost in the Shell, and Blade Runner 2049, where he creates products and better worlds for both supervillains and real-life heroes. He advises globally on resilient growth strategy and product innovation to clients like Samsung, Microsoft, Verizon, PepsiCo, and the United States government. He is an in-demand thought leader, speaker, and contributor for TED, Forbes, and the Harvard Business Review. He holds a degree in industrial design from Pratt Institute, spent years as a research consultant to the MIT Media Lab, and in management training at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. His new book, Rogue Waves, was recently published, which looks at future-proofing your business to survive and profit from radical change. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. That's a, a great resume. <laughs> I, I just love that. You, but, make, you make me sound so much cooler than I am. <laughs> but the way, the way I like to start the sh- show, Jonathan, is, is usually um, with a quote from my guests, um, which resonates with them. Do you have one you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, there's a wonderful quote from Anis Nen that says, um, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. And I think that that's really a, what the book is about, is this difference between our perception of reality uh, and reality itself, especially as it changes in our increasingly volatile world. That's a great quote. And it's funny because I actually, um, as I was reading the book, I focused on that quote bizarrely. And, and actually, it really ties in nicely with the nature of this podcast. 
because it's got a neuroscience and psychology feel. And, and I totally agree with you that my perception of the world is completely different from yours because of the past history that you're applying to interpreting you know, the facts as they are. Um, and it's really interesting how I think the brain does these crazy things, but based on our past experience. But anyway, I think we'll, we'll definitely touch on that later on down, down the line. Absolutely. And, and I love that saying where, you know, it's like my, my side of the story, your side of the story, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, because it's all about, you know, perception and the way we interpret things. Absolutely. One of the things I often look at is the law. How, how, do, how do we actually decide what's true and what's not? How do we use different types of logic or different ways of knowing what, what in, uh, what's called epistemology? And there are really four ways of knowing about the world. Uh, we can uh, look at it deductively, kind of like a lawyer does. We can look at it, uh, and, and that's kind of critical thinking. Uh, the second is we can look at it inductively like a scientist, and we can look at the, the range of what we know, and based on that, what is likely to be true. We can look at it like Sherlock Holmes, and this is what's called abductive thinking, where we say, okay, well, here's what I know. What if something that I know turned out to be untrue, or there was something I didn't know? How would it change my perspective? How would it change my actions? And then the last is what's called Bayesian modeling or, or um, Bayesian inference. And this is where, this is kind of how artificial intelligence works, where you uh, take a bunch of statistics, these, these things that are uh, correlated, and then you use logic to kind of link them together. And, and doing that, and this is a, a technique that we've really started developing in the last 30 years, you can start to move correlation, right? Remember this from statistics class? Correlation does not equal causation. Correlation without directionality doesn't equal causation, right? If you can start to say, you know, here's my systems model of what's going on, and then you stack up statistics, uh, uh, you can actually start to understand what's most likely to happen next. And this is the way a lot of artificial intelligence works. This is the way search engines work. This is why one of the reasons why uh, hurricane forecasting has gotten about 75% better in recent decades. And so you can start to understand the more you know about how to look at the unknown, uh, you can start to understand more than you would imagine. You just need a process for doing it. That's a great insight. And we'll definitely touch, touch on that you know, later on in the, in the show. Get, going on to your um, career, was there a, a particular strategy in, in how it evolved? Um, and how did you end up being a futurist at HP? That sounds like a, a great title. I'm sure many people would like to be a futurist. Looking backwards, it was a straight line. <laughs> uh, I, I started off wanting to be a photojournalist and worked uh, very early in my career at Time Magazine, uh, where I had a chance to work on cover stories pretty much every week. So go into these new situations and try and understand what was going on and floods in Mississippi, um, going and talking with, with future presidents, talking with, with senators and congressmen, spending time with homeless people, going in and trying to build that empathy, find that story. I kind of realized about the time that the World Wide Web came out, uh, that this was not a good future being in general interest magazines. <laughs> and so I went, uh, got a degree in industrial design and really was interested in this question of how do we find meaning in products? Why is a Porsche worth more than a Kia, right? They do the same thing. Well, why, why do we ascribe this value to, to different things? And I spent a lot of time thinking about those sorts of issues. In the early 2000s, Sony called 
and they wanted to build a museum of the future and for a bunch of reasons i was kind of the guy who dealt with technology and uh storytelling and built environments and somehow i got this job where where my job was to spend you know the better part of a year thinking about okay well what is the internet what does all of this technology look like in 10 years and how do we build a museum that tells this story uh, since then a lot of my work has been about that theme of you know not how do we create products but how do we create platforms that will survive change survive disruption whether that's uh, helping large mobile phone companies figure out what happens when the margin drops out of mobile phones how do they become software companies whether that's working with the US government to figure out how do we how do we feed 9 billion people on the planet by 2050 i mean it's just a simple math question of of we're out of arable land to grow on we're going to see a significant increase in calorie demand over the next couple of decades how do we deal with it I can't tell you how I became a futurist. That was a title that the HP put onto me. I wasn't expecting to have a job, honestly. It was came out of the blue. I, I was working with a food and beverage company reinventing their their product platforms, and HP said, "Hey, you know, we know a thing about two kids in the garage and how they changed the world because they were the original. You know, they're 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 the, they're the OG of Silicon Valley, and uh, we don't want it to happen to us." So we want to have someone who can come in and help us figure out what our investment priorities are for the next for the next decade. And that ranged from uh, looking at human resources issues, what are the workforce and skills issues of the next decade, where do we need to be located uh, to access labor, access those skills, uh, what types of technologies do we need to be developing, and what do our products need to be look like, and and how do we enter new markets? How, how do we enter Africa? How do we build channels you know, into Southeast Asia as those economies evolve? And how do we do it in a way that's competitive with Chinese industry, which has very, very different goals in terms of how they drive profit, in terms of how they're taxed, and in terms of the political, the, the national geopolitical objectives of US versus Chinese technology companies. So it, it was this really interesting shift. I hadn't expected to get there. But as a futurist, that's what I do. I help companies to make better decisions whatever happens next. I think a lot of people misunderstand what a futurist does and they say, oh yeah, he, he's Nostradamus. I do believe that I can predict the future within a range. Like I know, you know, in the next 50 years, Harsha, you're going to die. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> that range is probably not acceptable to a lot of people or a lot of business decisions. And so a lot of what I do is I help companies use these tools that I talked about to shrink that range. Uh, that range of possibilities so that they can make better decisions uh, and, and not just kind of rely on how do we do 6% better or worse than last year? Because as we've discovered this year, compound growth, which is kind of how companies build their strategy, is irrelevant in the face of compound volatility, right? When when everything goes south all at the same time, it doesn't matter that you did 6% better than last year. The entire economy has done, you know, 70% worse. So so how do you deal with that? How do you how do you turn those that volatility into advantage because it turns out that actually more billionaires are minted in financial disruptions than in stable times right these are actually the opportunities for growth these are actually the opportunities for creativity because when you have disruption the rules change you can create new rules you 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 have an opening because no one is focused and if you are prepared to take that wedge if you're prepared to take that opening if you're prepared to surf the rogue wave um you can do really really well for yourself and 
it's easy to look at a company like Amazon and say, hey, you know, too much money, uh, too smart people. I mean, holy cow, the CEO just quit and for his retirement party, he built himself a rocket ship, right? It's, it's really easy to look at that and say, that's how it works. But my friend's family farm uh, serviced 800 of the top restaurants in the world. On the same day last year, they all closed. That company should be dead. Yeah, no, no, totally, yeah. They shipped more vegetables by weight in 2020 than they did in 2019. They actually took a pivot. They had a back of pocket plan about how do we target consumers. They took a pivot and they started shipping to consumers around the around the world. As those restaurant clients are coming back, they have a whole new baseline business that they're now growing on top of, right? They could actually double their size in 2022. Many of their competitors are under huge financial distress if they survive this. Yeah, that, and I just like the whole idea of you know looking at the reality of the situation and thinking, okay, we need to. Well, well actually, when when disaster strikes, you need to have a backup plan. And I think you know, from what you're saying is you're 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 trying to look into the future. How you know, it's like a decision tree. There's like the the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, and like a multiple uh, number of scenarios in between. Uh, almost mm -hmm. like creating a multiverse situation and then trying mm -hmm. to figure out, okay, which of the paths I, I, I can go down. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you that not having a plan and not thinking about these things, you're just a, a, a hostage to fortune because you're just hoping the world will carry on the way it has in the past. But as we were talking about, you know, there are all these big changes, technological, demographic um, diseases, all these things are hitting, which are creating rogue waves. Is that correct? That that's correct. So you know, you've heard of a, a black swan event, right? These these things that come out of nowhere, they're unpredictable, and they up in the world. The thing is, when you talk to the guy who coined that phrase, a guy named Nassim Taleb, and he says 2008, yeah, that wasn't a black swan event. He says COVID. <laughs> that wasn't a black swan event. So so these things that CEOs like to say, oh, yeah, I couldn't have known. Well, actually, we could have. We chose to not look. When you take a look at uh, COVID, right, what was really going on here? The, the Office of Net Assessment at the U.S. Department of Defense said this was an increasing threat. Uh, Marsh McLennan, which is kind of the big risk management house, uh, they misidentified it. They, they, I think they miscalculated. But at HP, we did the same research. And uh, unlike the eight of 10 of the uh, largest companies in America uh, that failed to identify pandemics as a threat, we did. Not only did, did we do that, but we started looking at how do we create, and not just for this reason, right? We looked at a whole range of reasons why this would be valuable. Uh, we looked at, you know, how do we actually start having people work from home? What would happen if our workforce uh, was increasingly not in offices? How could we help companies digitally transform if something like this happened? We invested in technologies that, uh, smart diagnostics technologies that uh, can help deal with uh, rapidly rapidly diagnosing diseases. Uh, that, that company just came to market, actually. It's, it's been publicly announced in the last couple of months. And so when you start looking at what happens, what's possible, you can start to actually figure out how to turn it to your advantage. And so how would you look at something like COVID, right? Like, yeah, it came out of nowhere, but not really. It's not completely out of left field, is it? It's not. I think what we misunderstood was the difference between a static threat and a dynamic threat. We hadn't had a pandemic really like 
that got out of control in the same way uh, as COVID has since 1918, certainly since the, the, the Hong Kong flu in, in the 50s or 60s. What we missed was that these types of diseases were happening more frequently. We were just getting better at containing them. And just like um, New York, which, you know, they weren't prepared for the, the flash floods of, of last week. Well, you know, the thing about nature is she's eventually going to break the dam. Yeah, she's eventually going to break the dike. And so the question isn't just how do you protect yourself from that? It's what happens next? Uh, there was a knowable domino that would happen when there was a next pandemic or when there was a next geopolitical shock that caused a similar type of global shutdown uh, and supply chain crash. And we could have known that. We could have modeled out what happens, what would happen to our, to our finances, what would happen to our operations, how would it change our operating environment, our external environment, and how would it change our strategy, things like our, our demand forecasts. And what would we do if all of those things hit at once? So the goal really shouldn't be for your career uh, uh, or for business to prepare for any individual rogue wave, right? The, the likelihood of a meteor strike is like way too small to plan for. What you should be thinking about is how do you be prepared whatever happens? Yeah, no, no, to totally. And and I like this idea of the ABCs of resilient growth, because I think you talk about awareness, you know, behavior change, and culture change. And I really like the whole idea of awareness. You're, and, and whether you're a business or an individual looking at your career, you're sort of scanning the future and thinking, okay, I'm in this industry at the moment. These are my skill sets. But is this going to be um, relevant or applicable for the next 10 to 15 years? And I think the smart person will think, okay, if I'm not, or if I want to make myself more employable, how do I either pivot or shift or upskill myself while I'm still working? Uh, but would you like to just talk about, you know, a bit about, you know, the ABCs, um, you know, how you view them, uh, Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I think two things, you know, the first is uh, the best piece of career advice I, I give people is don't prepare for your next job. Ask yourself, if the next thing I do fails, how do I end up in a better place anyway? Right? How do I increase my optionality, the range of options available, as well as my potential, my ability to deliver against those? And that's a much better way of looking at your career than I'm going to get more senior, right? Because the reality is, you know, careers implode at a rate, you know, they'll continue imploding at a faster rate. So you talk about the ABCs of resilient growth. And so we, we it's kind of a mnemonic, right? Awareness. How do we increase awareness in our organizations, but also for ourselves? Because if we don't know why we will have to change, there's no reason that we will. And so when I look at awareness in the book, we talk about 10 knowable trends that are individually manageable. We're having an, an older uh, aging population uh, in the UK, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in most of Europe and in the United States. Yeah. London, I, I don't know what's going on after Brexit, your immigration's goofy. Um, uh, this explosion of cheap money, this, this printing of money to stimulate the economy in the face of COVID, but it was going on before and it's going to be really difficult for a large governments to wean themselves off of this. Countries like the UK, uh, countries like France, Germany, the United States, China, Japan, and that's going to have huge impact, especially uh, if you operate, if you work with smaller countries that don't have the ability to print money in the same kind of way. Uh, and it's going to have impacts in terms of the social safety net, the things that we choose to spend money on uh, is society. 
And so my point is that you take a look at these things and they're individually manageable. But the question is, what happens when they overlap? You know, how do they impact your career? How do they impact your business? How do they change the skills that are relevant? The second thing we talk about after awareness is we talk about behavior change, right? It doesn't matter if you can see the tsunami coming if you don't know how to get off the beach, right? You have to have these kind of skills within uh, your organization or ideally as an individual, though most people haven't mastered all of them, to look at the future, to look at what's changing, to figure out how to be more resilient and to understand what happens next, how to exploit it. And we talk about that in the book. We have about five chapters, one that talks about reality testing, uh, kind of how do you use scientific methods, a lot of the epistemology stuff I was talking about before, about inductive, deductive, abductive thinking. We talk about how do you observe a system so that you can understand the range of things that could happen, uh, how, why it might accelerate, why it might decelerate, uh, why it might break, so that you have early warning signs. You can get ahead of what happens next. We talk about generating the range of possible futures, right? How do you figure out like what actually happens, right? Like there's a reason that we don't have uh, flying cars, even though Larry Page seems to want to build them these days. And it has to do with power budgets, right? This is this is a problem that that might go away. It also has to do with the fact that most people are really bad at thinking in three dimensions. Yeah, so, so there are all of these things that you can kind of look at and be like, okay, that future is unlikely to happen in the way that we were told in the Jetsons, right? Then you look at how do you uncouple threats and opportunities? Right. And I think this is a huge thing. You were talking about decision trees, right? How do you start with that range of, of possible futures, right? What if we have an, an AMC year next year, right? AMC, all of their movie theaters uh, got shuttered. Uh, they almost went bankrupt. They had to take on a billion dollars last year. And the CEO says they still might have to go bankrupt. They walked into 2020 thinking they had a pretty good strategy. There was some nips and tucks, some things they had to do, but they thought they had a good strategy. Zoom walked into the same year and said, hey, We've got some pretty good strategy. We've got some nicks and tucks we got to do. They experienced 26 times growth. Now, my question to you is if I waved a magic wand and said you had all the people, all the money, all the opportunities in front of you, you could execute on them. Could you actually absorb 10 years of growth as Amazon's retail business did in 90 days or 26 times growth like Zoom's did, right? You, you, you have to think about as you look at these decision trees, you know, and you start saying, hey, here's my range of possible futures, not the ones I want, but what if I have an AMC year? What if I have a Zoom year? And then going back to today, like what are the key decision points that would cause one of those things to happen? versus the other. And how can I nip off, you know, the the branches that are going to cause the what I call the ugly future instead of the good one? I, I think that's an amazing point you made there, Jonathan. It's just the whole idea of there are these big changes happening. There's a lot of volatility. And I think going forward, things are going to become even uh, more volatile rather than less. But actually, I think the smart people will think, okay, these are opportunities. Obviously, there is downside there. But if I can minimize the risk, minimize the threats and like surf the wave, take hold of the opportunities and it's, you know, whether you're on a corporate level or on an individual level, there are massive opportunities. I mean, just on a very silly basis, I started my podcast during the, the pandemic when actually luckily everybody was at home. So I got these, I got great numbers and I'm thinking I'm not that good, um, but because- ah, You're pretty good. You're pretty good. <laughs> but people are looking for content. The point is, you know, sort of mindset. And I think that's quite crucial that you have this adaptable mindset that when you know, things go wrong, rather than you know, freaking out, 
you've got a plan, you've got a mindset, which you can implement. Um, and I think that ties in with your work. Is that really correct? Uh, absolutely. And, and we talk a lot in the book about you know, simple tools that you can use, right? Because like, if, if you kind of look at these futures and say, oh, I've got this complex decision tree. And by the way, map it out on paper. You can't keep the stuff in your head. Uh, everyone keep, tries to keep it in your head. Put it on paper. It's the best way. Trust me on this. You don't want to keep it in your head. It's impossible. My point is that there are simple tools, right? Like in, in finance and, and contract law, we use three basic concepts that we they have different names, you know, often in different fields in mechanical engineering, they have different names, but timing, sequencing, and hedging, right? Like how do we make decisions at the right time? Right. Sometimes if you make decisions early, you get a huge financial advantage, for instance, right? Investing in an angel round and Facebook. Sometimes investing later gives you an advantage, right? Like if there if plane flights are undersold, you know, maybe you can get a real deal. How do you sequence your decisions? Right. Sometimes if you do things in a different order, the risk goes away. So uh, if you're a contract manufacturer, right, and you get paid before you pay for materials, you're guaranteed a margin. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and, and you have you have a lot of leverage uh, and then hedging. Right. Like oftentimes you have a lot of volatility in a system. Things get janky. So in the auto industry, Toyota in 2012, they had uh, the Daiichi nuclear power plant, Fukushima, had some trouble and it overheated and um, it shut down a lot of Toyota's supply chain. Now, these are the leanest, greenest, baddest manufacturers <laughs> on the planet. And when Fukushima melted down, their supply chain got all janked up. So they stepped back and they said, okay, well, what do we do here? Right? How do we, how do we hedge our bets? And they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to find the critical pieces in our supply chain components. And we're going to pay someone to hold on to a buffer of that material, maybe six months of semiconductors. The result was in 2016, when Taiwan had a natural disaster and everyone else was having trouble looking for parts, they had a six month buffer of supply. The same thing over COVID. What did it really cost them to do that, to hedge that bet? Half a point, just a little bit over the cost of borrowing the money. No, I really like that story, Jonathan, because it's sort of, it's almost contradictory to the whole just in time philosophy of Japanese manufacturing. Yeah, they invented invented just in time. And what what they discovered was there are places (laughs) where actually your, your, your competitive advantage is doing the opposite. Yeah. So it's a balance. And I think it takes a smart company to realize, look, okay, we've been doing something, as you're saying, all this time, but actually going forward, that's not the smartest thing to do, to always be so lean. And, and actually, another story which I loved in your book is you're talking about Elon Musk and SpaceX and the whole way he reframed the problem about building rocket ships. I, I think Elon Musk is is just fascinating, but would you like to talk a little bit about the, the spreadsheet that launched 100 rockets? Yeah. When you take a look at SpaceX... The, the core insight was that there was something goofy happening in the market. The cost of rocketry, the cost of putting things in space was going up. And yet the cost of the actual rocket was about 2% of the cost of the flight, if, the, the materials cost, right? The metal, the, the copper, the whatever. Mm-hmm. So they figured out that if they could look at uh, the different components of 
the rocket and, and, and cost reduce them, change the processes by which they were made, they would have a significant cost advantage and it would be difficult to overcome. And this is exactly what we're seeing. The fascinating thing about what Musk did was a lot of the processes were similar to what uh, the Russians did to catch up with the United States. Like it, it, he didn't have to invent, he's an incredibly inventive guy, but he didn't have to invent a new way of doing business. He just had to invent a way of doing business that, that the Boeings and the Lockheeds of the world uh, weren't able to do because of how they were locked into the industrial structure. So he gave himself a huge boost. He gave himself, you know, eight or nine years of runway to the point where in 2008, when SpaceX had some real financial troubles, NASA about bailed them out because they were forcing the price of space down. You know, not, not necessarily because at that point they thought they were going to be the winner, mainly because they were just forcing the price of space down. And so the question is, you know, how do you look at those first principles, right? What's actually going on here? You know, sometimes it's uh, the answers to come up with an entirely new way of doing things. But a lot of times it's it's really just looking at the system and saying, okay, well, where can I do things that others can't? How can I nudge the system to my strategic advantage as opposed to playing by other people's rules? I think the interesting thing about the Elon Musk story is that you know he almost comes at it with a fresh pair of eyes because I think not that I'm a rocket expert, but I think a lot of the cost is you can't reuse the rocket. You know, you, you send people up, you don't reuse the rocket. But I think he's actually reusing the rocket, which I think drives down the costs. And then he's changing the way. Uh, you know, I think with, with one of his new launch vehicles, the way it separates from the the rocket from the the vehicle. And that saves costs because you, you don't have to come up with these complicated processes. Therefore, the, the things that can go wrong are reduced. And I think a lot of times, if you can make it as simple as possible, and, mm -hmm. and even with your career, just make things simple. Mm -hmm. Don't try and uh, come up with these elaborate ideas, which aren't necessary. Look at the reality of the situation. Uh, look, try and look at the future and come up with a plan and a strategy. What, what, what do you think, Jonathan? I I absolutely agree. I'm, you know, I'm I'm the the ultimate example of someone who writes and talks about complexity. But at the end of the day, it's the simple decisions that are typically the most reliable. I absolutely agree with you, and and I think that if you take a look at Elon Musk's training. Right, he has a background in applied physics or materials, uh, and he has a background in economics from from Wharton. So, so he has a really un strong understanding of how do you get down to things literally at the atomic level, and then how do you model systems, right? Complex systems like like stock markets, you know. And I think that combination of getting down to the root cause, right, understanding the reality, and then understanding how you model systems around that. I think it's a really powerful combination. And you, know, you don't need to be Elon Musk to do these things. So much of what he does, so much of what he suggests, so much what he thinks of what he thinks about is how do we do it in a more simple way, right? What are the underlying structural issues? So when you take a look at SpaceX, right, a lot of what happened when it was founded was uh, the Lockheeds, the Boeings of the world. They had PhDs with 40 years of experience locked in often in union labor contracts, which I, I'm not against union labor, but what it meant was that their cost basis was very, very high. And the government was basically paying them to stay in existence in case we needed nuclear weapons again. So they didn't have a real interest in innovating on small things that the government didn't pay for. Musk looked at this and said, okay, well, A, 
I'm the one guy on the planet who's got $50 million to play this game. <laughs> really significant thing to keep in mind. But the second thing he said was, okay, I can hire a bunch of young people who don't have access to careers at these places because they're locked up by these old people. And I can take the types of innovation methods that we used in Silicon Valley to develop PayPal and sort of more agile methods. And we can try and apply those to hardware. That was a relatively novel idea at that point in the United States, certainly in aerospace, where the, the concept had been about zero failure rate. Like, how do we remove all of the risk from the system after the uh, space shuttle uh, disaster? So so he, he turned the whole thing on his head. I mean, they were out there in some South Pacific island, like <laughs> in their t-shirts, like firing off rocket ships. <laughs> And it was like what he was doing was was straight up nuts on on one scale, but genius on another. My point is he looked at the basics, the industrial structure, and said, what can I do that the big players can't and don't want to do? And how can that give me a five or 10 year head start? Yeah, thank goodness that Elon likes sci-fi and rockets. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> cool. The other story of, of the many in the book that, that I love, but I, I'm a big basketball fan. And I think we talked yeah. about this off camera. And I love the, you know, the, the story about playing basketball on a football field, but also the way Shane Battier analyzed data. Um, do you just want to give a, a few insights into that? Absolutely. Many businesses, especially manufacturing businesses, uh, CapEx heavy businesses, we still use waterfall planning methods which are really important right because you know you have a you have your you know your five-year plan your three-year plan your annual your quarterly plan but they can lock you in if you think about them as we're going to go from here to there as opposed to we're going from from where we are to a range of possible futures because uh, the future changes when you think about a football team right you set up you call the play you run the play you hope it works Right. Uh, that's that's a very structured, strategic way of looking at football, but also the way we often look at business. I think a better concept for how we look at business today is much more like basketball, where at any given moment, right, the defense can be shooting three point shots or going for a slam dunk. And the offense can be trying to block the, the opponent's team, right, from, from taking a shot. And so it's a highly dynamic way of looking at the world and looking at roles. As the world moves faster, as it gets more volatile, I think that flexibility and role is going to become more and more important. And the type of communication that we do between roles is going to become more and more important. When you when you're in a large organization particularly, you know, what you see is that, you know, people uh, in one silo don't know or are even disincentivized to talk to people in another silo. The finance people don't know the the legal people and uh, the the chief of staff in Europe doesn't know the chief of staff in India, you know, even though they have the same problem. You know, if they got together, they'd spend half as much, they'd get it done twice as fast, they'd have a lot more political clout to get it done. But because they don't communicate across silos, everyone loses. So I think as the world moves faster, we're going to need to think differently about that. You were interested in Shane Battier. So Shane Battier was this um, amazing basketball player with just stunningly bad statistics. I mean, his shoot rate wasn't very good. He just he was he really was a mediocre player. Except 
every time he got traded, the team he got traded to got dramatically better, like 100% better in some cases. My point is, you know, what was he doing differently? Why was it that when he would play the the Lakers and Kobe Bryant was the big star of the, the Lakers team, maybe some of the best stats in the history of basketball, most even stats in the history of basketball. The Lakers would have a better night when they played against Batier if Kobe Bryant took the night off than if he was playing. Now, why was that? That's an interesting thing to, to think about. And the reason is that Shane Batier wasn't playing for points. He was playing the field. He was he was shifting. He was pushing where all of the competitive players were on 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 the court to their disadvantage, to places where they shot poorly, to places where they made bad decisions. He was playing statistics instead of playing the game. And as his peers learned how to do the same thing, the entire team got better. And now he's uh, I believe he's the um, the stats guy for the Heat. But, but, and uh, and that's that's I think that's just a powerful yeah. lesson about even if you are not the best player on the team, certainly statistically, maybe the worst player on the team, you can actually create the most value. I think that's a great point because you know not not just in sport but in life, uh, it's about I think it's about patterns and recognizing sometimes those patterns and thinking about past history and this is what has happened and seeing, look, can I extrapolate this going forward? Um, were there reasons for that happening? Just thinking about these different possibilities and whether it's your career or your life or whatever it is. Well, I, I think it is, but it's also about figuring out where you can't extrapolate it moving forward. Sure. So of course, yeah. if you take a look at climate modeling, I, I think that I agree with the directionality of the models. I do question whether the same types of statistics that you use to model the stock market can model the climate precisely 100 years out. But directionally, they're, they're, they're quite accurate. And the reason I say that is that if you think that, you know, in the next decade, we're going to put a billion people into the US or UK level middle class. Each of those people that you take out of rural poverty and you put into Austin, Texas, or you put into uh, London, they're resource consumption goes up about 32 times. Well, if you do that with the billion or so, billion and a half people living that lifestyle today, they've increased resource consumption 32 times. Seems like we have a problem today with climate. You triple that, that's like a hundred times increase since say 1900, a hundred times increase. That's not sustainable, not just because of climate change, but because of all of the resource issues water, electricity, arable land. And these are going to be issues far before the, the last glacier melts. And so I think we need to think about where can we extrapolate into the future? Like this is all going to happen like it has, economic development's going to happen like it has, the economy is going to happen like it has. And where can't we, right? Because like clearly the projections that we have are wrong, right? And uh, the economic projections that we have are wrong. They can't happen in the way that we've said that they're going to happen. We yeah, need to yeah. rethink our assumptions. And, and and by the way, those disruptions, those places where the rules break down, those are the opportunities. Totally agree. And 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 just love that point about this growing middle class because you know they're going to want to have cars. They generally may eat um, you know, more meat or, or whatever it is. It's just a numbers game. Like, How do you produce all these things with the resources we have? It's just not sustainable. 
is not sustainable. Uh, and, and, you know, drinking with paper straws and buying a second Tesla so that you can save the, the environment twice as much, like neither of those strategies are going to work. These are government policy level issues. And they're about how do you, they're, they're, they're much, much bigger than anything you and I can do individually they're the big opportunity of the coming decades because there are two paths forward right one is the west tries to keep china and india from developing economically i don't think that's possible independent of not thinking it's ethical the second is that modi and g say hey you know what how about next generation you get some air conditioning because uh, air conditioning is that their air conditioning demands over the next number of years in china will be the entirety of its electrical footprint today right just think yeah. about the scale of that that's just air conditioning think about electric cars yeah. <laughs> think about yeah. think about all of these other things. It's going to be a while, right? And is Modi really just going to say, "Hey, that's fine"? Maybe in twenty hundred you get some of that. No, he's going to he's going to push the gas as hard as he can. We're in this situation where the entire development paradigm of the world is going to be disrupted in the next uh, fifteen years, ten years, and that is the biggest opportunity we've ever had. It's not a bad thing. This is the best thing that's ever happened as a species. Yeah, no, it's totally about reframing things rather than from threats to opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Right. How, how do you how do you nip off? You know, we talked about decision trees earlier, right? How do you nip off the, the branches that lead to the, the ugly future you don't want? And how do you grow the branches? How do you water the, the blossoms that lead to the future, the best possible future? Not like, yeah, it's good enough. The best possible future that you want. And, and Jonathan, before we dive into the sort of the careers part, one thing I'm quite fascinated about is in, in your root, uh, role as futurist in residence of this um, design company with films, can you yeah. give us any insights? Because I, I'm, I'm a huge sci-fi fan and, and I yeah. gather that you are as well. I believe they're doing something with Dune as well. Are there any like tidbits or insights you can give give to any sci- sci-fi geeks out there, like uh, myself? I, I can talk about how we do it much more than what <laughs> we do. Uh, so the reason that I think directors come to Territory Studio is because we think more holistically about how to visualize the future. So these are the guys who, like if you see many of the Marvel movies, Dune, Ready Player One, uh, the new Blade Runner movie, they do all of the technology visualization for, for films like that. It's not just about like, how do we make it look cool? It's about how do we tell the story of this world? How do we build this world? A lot of that is actually looking back and saying, okay, well, what are the technology, what is the technology basis of this world? What is the economic basis of a place like, you know, a, a, a movie like Dune, right? And how does that tie into the social milieu? Like an iPad would look really weird if you dropped it into... Arrakis. <laughs> Arrakis. <laughs> and those worms. Yeah. And yet you need to have a way to, to visualize those technologies, to visualize the experience uh, that those actors are having. Cool. Yeah, looking looking forward to the film and for sure. It's it's by the way, it's epic. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so cool. But yeah. just in terms of you know, bringing it back down to um, the careers and our audience, um, I think there's so many lessons that you know individuals can learn from you know rogue waves, scanning the future, 
looking to see if you need to upscale uh, the whole idea of resilience and being adaptable. You know, from your perspective, if you were either advising your 25-year-old self or your 30-year-old self or just thinking about the future and, and careers, what, what sort of advice or strategies would you give, Jonathan, to help people out? Obviously, tough times. I, I would suggest that maybe um, it's a bad idea to use your poker face at the roulette table. And what, what, what on earth does that mean? It means that if you choose the wrong strategy for the game that you're playing, the likelihood of winning is really low. And the game you're playing in your career is the game of life. So the first thing I would ask is go to your parents, go to your friend's parents, ask them what they hadn't expected to have happen in their lives. And then ask, okay, am I ready for that? Not, am I ready for you know some technology disruption? But what happens if my parents have cancer? Yeah. What happens if I didn't expect to have triplets today? What happens if, how do those life distractions, those life disruptions impact your career? And then take a look back at you know how we think that your career path is gonna change and say, okay, how do I increase my optionality no matter what happens? <laughs> So I I had uh, I was working as a public speaker at the beginning of COVID. You know I have an advisory practice. I do a lot of stuff with boards, and I had this book about what happens after the next crash. Uh, and everybody's like, "There's not going to be a financial crash. Financial disruptions can't happen. No one wants that book." Um, but it was sitting there. It was a back of pocket idea uh, that was ready to go when COVID hit. And that became my my pivot. That became my next play over the past year. And it was really nice to have the time to to write it and really research it and do this work. And so my my point is always figure out what you do when what you expect isn't what happens. That's you're really insightful because in a way I think yeah you can plan for um, maybe the promotion doesn't work out or companies get taken over. But I think they're, they're these big picture things which can completely throw you off course, which sometimes getting that advice from from people who've lived, lived life, because otherwise your lens of, it, it can be quite limited, can't it? I, I think so. And I think that the same, you know, we talked earlier about kind of what I call the four foes of growth, finances, operations, external changes, and strategy, right? Those things apply to your life as well, right? What happens if your assets collapse? What happens if your ability to deliver services breaks down? Maybe uh, um, my dad, for instance, he woke up one day in his late 60s and he had a brain tumor and he suddenly couldn't read anymore. Uh, and that was a yeah. lot of his business was was reading so he couldn't work anymore. So he had to have a plan for that. What happens if your external environment changes, right? What happens if AI accelerates faster than I think it will? And what happens if uh, demand for your services drops out? Got a degree in industrial design just at the point when a lot of mechanical engineering was being automated or turning into software and moving to China. Yeah, you know, what happens if that demand that you think is gonna be there isn't there? And, and just getting that external perspective from people who have been there and s- experienced more pain than, than you have uh, spent more time in Neptune's dunk tank. And I think this idea of just having a mindset which is resilient and can accept that yeah, things might happen. And, and I think some people think, well, do you really want to be living your life always thinking the worst can happen? But on the other hand, I think sometimes it's not a clever way to think, look, things are always going to be the same because they're clearly not. And actually they're changing ever more quickly thinking, do I have a backup plan? As you're saying, are there any old you know, ways I can pivot? 
it's a it's a clever thing to do i would go beyond that i don't think it's about the worst can happen you know helen keller once said that security is mostly an illusion and and it is these things happen all the time there were on uh, average four business shocks a year in the us in the 20th century as the world moves faster there will be more so i think that's important to recognize. But the second is that what we're really trying to constantly do is increase our options and increase our potential, right? Or increase the number of ways we could, the paths, number of paths we could go down. Our, our careers are always trying to shrink those and increase our potential, increase our ability to execute against those paths. That's great advice, Jonathan. Uh, before, I, before we sort of wrap up, are, are there any sort of, um, sort of uh, key highlights? I know there's so much good stuff in the book, but are there any key, <laughs> key messages you'd like to leave with our listeners? You know, we, we covered a lot of them. One is, you know, the world isn't as we are. <laughs> it is, it is as it is. The second is, you know, security is mostly an illusion, right? The, these threats and opportunities, risk, it's volatility. These are things that happen. The question is, what do you do about them? How do you build your skills to make sense of them? And how do you make sure that no matter what happens, you're increasing your optionality and you're increasing your potential and you're better able to understand uh, the game that's being played as opposed to the game that you have played in the past. I think that that's great advice. And obviously, Jonathan, I'm going to include all your social media uh, details in, in the show notes and definitely uh, people should check out Rogue Waves, great read. Um, and uh, obviously your website and your social media channels will, will be on there. People will have... A multitude of different ways of getting in contact uh, with you. Is there any anybody you'd like to give a, a shout out to? Family, cats, dogs. Oh, I, I'd love to give a shout out to my friend Dory Clark, who's done a tremendous amount of work over the last year helping me put this together, uh, and who's actually putting out a book about uh, long-term planning in your career uh, coming out this month, I believe, from Harvard Business Review. More than happy to give out a, a, a shout out to Dory. You know, I, I interviewed her about the long game actually a few months ago, and yeah, uh, enjoyed <laughs> reading it and yeah, had a, a great interview with her. Actually, for career, we co-authored a, uh, an article in Harvard Business Review. Uh, about future-proofing your career, which is probably worth taking a look at. Oh, yeah. No, no I'll definitely uh, make sure that that's in the show notes. But Jonathan, thanks again so much for your time and hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Is it in San Francisco you're in? I'm, yeah, I'm in Sausalito, the next town north. Cool. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.